Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. We're in Revelation chapter 3. If you're a guest, we've been going through the seven churches in Asia Minor, and Jesus Christ sent a letter to each one of these churches And every letter was read to every church, and that's good to keep in mind as we go through here. This morning, we're going to be looking at the Church of the Living Dead. That church is Sardis. Chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we get into this message, I want to ask you something. Could you give a testimony like you heard here this morning from these three folks? Well, not a testimony exactly like that, but exactly like that in the sense of the outline. They... We realized they were a sinner. They realized Jesus Christ was the one and only way to heaven, and they trusted Christ as Savior. Um, Whenever we interview people for new members, uh, a deacon and a pastor sits down with them, and the first question we ask them, please tell us your personal testimony of salvation. Do you have a personal testimony of salvation? And if you don't, I'd like you to think about that, and I pray the Holy Spirit would work in your heart as we look into God's Word. You know, it's good to remind ourselves that we're dealing with real geography and real history as we look through these seven churches. And again, these are seven churches that existed in the first century in the area of Asia Minor, a Roman province. So don't think of Asia as we think of Asia today. This was part of the Roman Empire. But they were real churches, real people real families, and I want you to remember that as we go through these churches. When I began this series, you as a congregation did not know that the Lord laid on my heart that I would be retiring the end of June, but of course I knew. And I've been praying about, Lord, what are these messages that you want me to bring to the church in these last months that I'm going to be here as your pastor? And the Lord drew my heart to the seven churches of Asia Because this is the resurrected Jesus. He has a message for each individual church. And yet every message, there's something in it that we can apply to our lives and to our church. And this seemed particularly appropriate. Because these messages we've seen are relevant 
and at the same time, they are timeless. We saw in chapter 1 that the churches are represented as lampstands and Jesus Christ moving among the lampstands as he examines each church. Our church is only effective if we hold up the Lord Jesus Christ as the light of the world. Churches come and go, pastors come and go. In a book I read, the first line of the book says, every pastor is temporary. Uh, Every pastor is an interim pastor. And that's certainly true. But the church of Jesus Christ continues on until he comes and calls the church home. So what can we learn about Jesus from this particular church, the church of Sardis? Now, I love these letters because as we've gone through, I've given you a little bit of the background and history of each city. There was certainly more that I could give you. I love history, and I could certainly bore you uh, to death, but I don't do that. But I point out certain things because Jesus will take a situation from the history of each church, and we've seen that he applies that to the congregation that he's writing to. He connects certain elements also of the vision of John in chapter 1 to these churches. So what do we know historically about the city of Sardis? Well, the city of Sardis was an extremely wealthy, very, very wealthy city. This is an artist's conception of what the city of Sardis might have looked like. If you wanted it, you could get it in Sardis because trade routes ran through there, uh, very cosmopolitan. You would have seen a number of people from different nationalities. You would have heard people speaking different languages. It was sort of like a New York City back in the Roman Empire. And so Sardis was known for its riches. Many of you have heard the idiom, as rich as Croesus. What that means is that Croesus was one of the kings of Sardis. And there was just so much wealth in Sardis, it was almost unimaginable. In fact, history claims that Sardis was the first city to mint coins of silver and of gold because how much silver and gold they had in the city. So you would think that the chief characteristic of the city of Sardis would be its wealth. Well, that's one of the main characteristics, but reality history tells us that the chief characteristic was that the city was given over to decadence. It was an extremely decadent, immoral, ungodly city. Even the pagans spoke of Sardis with contempt. To them, Sardis was a name of contempt. Now, we have seen what's been going on in some of these uh, cities and the pagan temples and the things that happened in the pagan temples. And so if the pagans thought Sardis was really bad and they, they, they were contemptuous of Sardis, they must have been really, really, really bad in the way the people of Sardis lived. His citizens were notorious for their immoral, pleasure-living lives. And sadly, the lives of many of the Christians were not much different from that of the citizens of Sardis. So we see this condemnation from the Lord Jesus of this local church in this city. We have seen some of these churches where the Christians are persecuted, where it was very dangerous to be a Christian and live in these cities. It wasn't dangerous if you were a compromised Christian to live in Sardis. Nobody was going to bother you. Nobody was going to persecute you because everybody in the city was immoral. It kind of reminds you of our culture today. If you're going to live a compromised Christian life, nobody's going to make fun of you. Nobody's going to you know, 
come against you. And it was the same back in the city of Sardis. You know, when you read this letter, Jesus makes no mercy, mention of persecution from without or heresy from within the church. And so here was a church that Jesus describes as being dead. Sardis was the church of the living dead. It reminds me of what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5, 6. She who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. The New Living Translation says, she who lives only for pleasure is dead while she lives. And we are certainly living in a culture where many people are living only for pleasure. So Jesus did not begin with a commendation. He began this letter with a condemnation. And we have seen that even in some of these churches where there were serious problems, in some of them, Jesus would begin with a, he would commend them. But there was nothing to commend in the church of Sardis, only to condemn. So verse one, to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? And we said that could be the pastor, that could be a messenger who's carrying the letter back to these churches. These things says he who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, back in chapter 1, when we looked at the vision of Jesus, we said this could refer to the fullness of the Holy Spirit spoken of in Isaiah 11:2. The seven stars are most likely the leaders, elders, or pastors of the churches, we believe. And so notice again that Jesus intimately knows what's happening in each church. In fact, he knows the church of Sardis better than they know themselves. Now, again, what is a church? Most likely, these were, most of them were house churches. Um, church isn't a building. Um, we are the church. The people are the church. The members are the church. And so Jesus knew what was happening in each and every one of those members' lives, just like he knows what's happening in our lives. And he knows us better than we know ourselves. Psalm 139, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought from afar off. Jesus not only knows our actions, he knows our thoughts and every word that we say or don't say. Well, the interesting thing about the church of Sardis was that it had a rep. It had a reputation before men. Look at verse 1. I know your works that you have a name that you are alive. We suspect what that means is if you went into the community of Sardis and said, oh, uh, where's the church of Sardis? Most people could probably tell you. It was probably a church involved in the community. It was probably a church that was very visible, very active. I suspect it was, it's like many liberal churches today. A lot of social programs connected into the community a lot of social activities, but where's the work of the Holy Spirit? Where is the message of the gospel? A lot of physical activity, but the Spirit is lacking. I think they're like Israel in the days of King Josiah when they lost the book of the law in the house of the Lord. I love that passage where Josiah, the boy king, comes to be, and he, he wants to, re, you know, clean out the temple. And as they go into the temple, they find the book of the law had been lost in the house of the Lord. And I think in many of these churches, the Bible has been lost in the house of the Lord. 
They might refer to it, but they don't really preach it. They don't really talk about sin and the need for repentance. And they don't really proclaim the true gospel of Christ. So if you lived in Sardis, you would have looked at this church as having a vital ministry in the community. That's not how Jesus saw this church. Sort of like Israel in the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 6, verse 4. O Ephraim, which was a name for the northern kingdom, what shall I do to you? O Judah, the southern kingdom, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, like the early dew, it goes away. If you go outside, you're not going to find any frost on the ground. My wife said last night, you ought to put something over those plants. We're going to have a frost. And I looked at my phone and said, no, we're not. I'm telling you, that's what we're going to have a frost. I hate it when she's right. It just drives me crazy. So I go out this morning, and sure enough, there's a frost. But it's gone now. Or the early dew on the grass. He says to Israel, your faithfulness, that's, you know, that, that's, that's what you're like. You're like the dew that goes away. And over the years, we've seen people come into our church, and it's a good description of them. Their faithfulness is like the dew on the grass, and they fade away. So, the church has a reputation before men, but God's verdict of the church of Sardis was very, very different. Verse 1, I know your works, that you have a name, but you, that you are alive. Now, let this hit you, but you are dead. You're dead. Spiritually speaking, this church is dead. The most important element of any Christian church is its spiritual life. Evidence that the Holy Spirit is moving among the people. And this often is the most common spiritual sickness when people's spiritual eyes sort of glaze over. We come into church and, and see, this is why this is warning. This could happen to our church as well if we, if we don't take stock of what he's saying here. When we become more concerned with the material than the spiritual, when we get so caught up in forms that take precedence over the work of the Holy Spirit, we could become like the children of Israel that Jesus said in his day, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their worship became very mechanical and superficial. The message of the gospel did not grip their heart, the love for Jesus grew very, very cold. And so, what a terrible epitaph from the lips of the Lord Jesus. But you are dead. We saw two weeks ago, there's a downward progression here. In Ephesus, love for Jesus was waxing cold. In Pergamos, sin was tolerated. In Thyatira, sin was promoted. And so now in Sardis, the church has become dead. So what does Jesus say to a dead church? And we can't just brush this aside and say, well, that's Sardis. Our church isn't dead. Did you hear the vitality of those testimonies when people were being baptized? You know, we sense that, I sense the Holy Spirit when I come in here uh, through the singing and, and, and through the fellowship and the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And we're, we're talking about the gospel all the time. So what does he say to a dead 
church? Well, Jesus gave them a series of commandments. Look at verse 2. So the first one is be watchful. Now, that doesn't really bring out the power of what Jesus is saying here. And so some versions will put it this way. Wake up! Some of you just woke up right there. Okay. That's what he was saying to them. He's saying, wake up. You don't tell dead people to wake up. One of my jobs years ago was a custodian at the Altoona Hospital. And I worked from the operating room upstairs to the morgue downstairs. And sometimes we'd go in the morgue at night to clean and there would be a body there. My boss was a pretty ungodly man and so he would wiggle the guy's toe and say, hey, do you like the floor? Um, there was no response, thankfully. <laughs> and um, I could have stood there and hollered in that person's ear and say, wake up, wake up. There's not going to be any response because they are dead. And dead is dead. Unless you're Miracle Max and then you're mostly dead, but some of you won't know what reference that is. But anyways, um, so these believers were dead but there were some in the church that weren't dead, but they were asleep. I think the majority of the church, they were not saved. But there was an element we're going to see in here of true believers in the church, but they were spiritually asleep. And so Jesus is appealing to the true Christians to look at what's happening in their church. Look at what's happening in your church. I think some of you, because I know some of your testimonies are here, because you were in a church like the church of Sardis. And you began to sense the spirit had left and there was just form and some kind of structure, but nothing of the spirit was going on. Joseph Stoll calls the culture of Sardis a get-along culture. Well, that describes our culture, doesn't it? Get-along culture. Get along with the culture, no problem. Nobody's going to bother you. You don't stand up and talk about truth as opposed to error. You don't talk about the gospel. You don't talk about sin. Everybody's fine with that. You can talk about the love of Jesus all day long. But the moment you mention the need for repentance and you talk about Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then you're going to have a problem. The majority of this church loved the world more than they loved Jesus is really the issue here. And things seemed to be going well on the outside. But as Jesus looked at this church, he said it was rotting from the inside. What happened? They lost the gospel. They lost the gospel. They, somewhere along the way, because remember, these churches were planted by someone who knew the gospel and preached the gospel, and people were saved, and a church was formed. So between then and now, something happened. They got so caught up in their forms. They got so caught up in probably in their social programs. Like many liberal churches that one time preached the gospel and people were saved on a regular basis and there was a spiritual vibrancy. And then they got into the social gospel. And Jesus would look at a church like that and say, once you were alive, but now you are dead. So Jesus is appealing to the spiritual element in the church, verse 2. Strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Even what was good in the church was in perilous situation and ready to die. 
The word perfect means fulfilled or completed. Even in the things that were good in the spiritual works, they were still falling short. This church was in a terrible condition. So Jesus says in verse 3, Remember, therefore, how you received and heard and hold fast and repent. Remember what you received and repent. This literally means keep on remembering. Keep on remembering. And he says, not only what you received, he says, remember how you received and heard. They heard the gospel. How? Through the preaching of the word, through the teaching of the word. That's why we always talk about the gospel. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we teach the gospel. Because when you lose the gospel, you lose everything. At one time, the Holy Spirit was working through the members. Something had happened. The members began to, the majority of the members began to grieve and quench the Spirit. And now, probably, the church is dominated by unsaved people. If it's a dead church, you've got dead people in the pulpit, dead people in the pews. They probably didn't have pews then, but a church of the living dead. This is the third time in these letters Jesus says, hold fast. There's still some life here. Hold fast. Those loyal to Jesus were to keep the trust of the gospel that they had received. Paul challenged Timothy, hold fast to the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 1.13. We can never take for granted that Grace Bible Church will always hold fast. We can never take for granted that the next generation will hold on to the gospel. We must always be aware of that. We must always be alert because Satan is so insidious and he loves to get into a church and destroy it. And think about the day we live in, spiritual compromise, all the deception that is out there. Certainly, if there was ever an admonition in this letter that we need to listen to, it's this admonition to hold fast. And then he tells them also to repent. Martin Luther said, it's the responsibility of the Christian to live a life of daily repentance. See, it'd be very easy for the faithful core in the church to look at all the compromising Christians and compare themselves to the compromisers. Say, well, we're doing better than that group over there, but we're never to compare ourselves with ourselves. They probably felt they didn't need any repentance. It's interesting what you can learn from the upper room when Jesus meets with his disciples, and he tells them in those final hours that one of you will betray me. And you remember the response of the disciples? Every one of them said, is it I, Lord? Is it, is, is it me? Is, is it me? Judas said, is it me? But he probably already started the betrayal. His was a words of deceit. You see, spiritual people are sensitive to sin in their lives. Not in everybody else's life, but sin in their own life. One of the marks of a spiritual person is they are sensitive to sin in their own life. You know, some people have the wrong idea of what, what spiritual maturity is. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, the, I'm the spiritual, uh, one of my favorite, uh, some of you guys don't remember the Muppets, but my favorite character was the American Eagle because he was always checking on everybody. You know, he was the self-righteous, hypocritical, pharisaical guy. And there are people in churches like that. And sometimes people look at those people and think, oh, they're the spiritual people. They can tell us what 
what, what hymn book we should use and what Bible we should use and what songs we should sing and, and how we should dress. And let me ask you a question. If you get closer to a perfect being, are you going to feel more sinful or less sinful? If you draw close to the Lord Jesus Christ, are you going to come away from that thinking, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good person? I mean, no, the closer you get to the Lord, the more you do realize he loves you, the more you appreciate grace, the more you appreciate forgiveness, and the more you see yourself as you really are. Why would God love me, such a wretched sinner, in the first place? And so... These people were not sensitive to their own sins. So Jesus gives them a very stern warning. Verse 3, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, this is the language of judgment. If you know your New Testament, you've heard that before, at least in different contexts. The Lord coming as a thief or a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Well, I said how Jesus masterfully takes situations from their own history or their own circumstances, and he weaves them into the letter, so he does that here. Because if you look at the history of Sardis, it's really fascinating. You see, behind the city of Sardis was Mount Tomulus this mountain that rose behind the city of Sardis. And on the top of that mountain was a citadel called the Citadel of Sardis. So the soldiers and the people of Sardis, when somebody attacked, they would rush to the citadel. And they believed that that citadel was impregnable because the only way to get there was to come up these steep cliffs, these steep, steep sides of the mountain, and they felt that no army could do that. Well, then the Greeks came under, or excuse me, the Persians came under King Cyrus. The Greek historian Herodotus wrote what happened. Cyrus promised a reward to any soldier that could find a way up to the citadel. So one day, one of uh, the soldiers in his army was standing there staring at the citadel, and he noticed a soldier from Sardis leaning over the ramparts. And as the soldier leaned over, his helmet fell off. And his helmet bounced down the cliffs, down to the bottom. And he stood there fascinated. And he watched this soldier weave his way down through those cliffs, pick up his helmet, and weave his way back up. So he went and told his, uh, the soldier in charge of him. He got back to Cyrus. And so that night, a special trained group of soldiers went by night that same way, entered the city, and the city was taken. So when Jesus says this to them, you know, if you don't watch, I'm going to come upon you as a thief, that would have resonated with them. And that actually happened twice in the history of Sardis. And the deal was the garrison did not believe anybody could come that way, so they didn't put a guard up there. And because of that, the soldiers came in an hour they didn't think they would come. So what's Jesus saying? If the true Christians in the church don't wake up, he's going to come to that church in judgment. So the church of Smyrna was being put to death but alive. The church of Sardis was alive but dead.
So then Jesus gives a word of encouragement to the true Christians in Sardis. This is amazing how passionate and how gracious our Lord is. Is that me doing that? It's, I've, I've had a thing in my throat. <clears> that <throat> yeah, didn't help, did it? Let me do this. Technology is such a wonderful thing. Now I turned it off. Am I still on? It's muted. All right, wait a minute. All right. So Jesus gives a word of encouragement to the true Christians in Sardis. Look at verse 4. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. See, even in the midst of spiritual apostasy, God always has his remnant. He always has a remnant of faithful believers. Do you remember Elijah when he uh, ran away from Jezebel and he's pouting in the cave and and he's like, oh, woe is me. There's nobody else in Israel that's being faithful. And and then the Lord comes to him and says, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. You see, God always has a remnant. And what's interesting is he says, you have a few names, names. The Lord knows individually who they are. You know, we often talk about Jesus knows my name. He knows my name and he knows the spiritual condition of my heart. And he knows if I'm one of the faithful or if I'm just playing games or I don't know the Lord. John 10, 3 says, To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Isn't it amazing? The Bible says in Psalm 147.4 that he knows all the stars and he's named all the stars. So (laughs) he's named all those stars. We can't even count the number. And he knows my name and he knows your name. Okay, this is the point in the sermon where I say, if you don't hear anything else, hear this, okay? It is possible in the midst of a depraved church in a depraved culture to live pure lives. Now, I don't believe we're living in the midst of a depraved church here at Grace, but we are definitely living in the midst of a depraved culture. It is possible to live pure lives even in this depraved culture because notice what he says. He's talking about the names of those who have not defiled their garments. See, in Greek culture... It was sacrilege if you went to the temple of a pagan god and you had a soiled or dirty garment. Now, they were talking about from the outside. Jesus focuses on the inside. And so there were those in the church who were still pure in spirit. They had not soiled their spirit by being involved in the immoral practices of the church. And then Jesus gives two promises to these faithful Christians. And I believe these are promises that you and I can also believe are for us. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Can you imagine walking with the Lord Jesus? I like to think of my parents and my loved ones and folks in our church who went on to heaven 
walking with the Lord Jesus. And he knows my name. You know, people consider it a great thing to be able to meet their heroes. Our son DJ, when he was young, he just loved Terry Bradshaw. We brought the boy up right to be a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And, and um, he just loved Terry Bradshaw. Well, Terry Bradshaw came to our mall in Maryland in the town we lived in. And uh, he was coming, uh, I think, to lead a parade or something for a, for a, a charity benefit. And so DJ was all excited, you know. He had this Steeler helmet, and he didn't wear it that day, but he wanted to go and meet Terry Bradshaw. So we take him to the mall, and you can imagine that everybody's thronging around Bradshaw. We can't hardly get near him. And, you know, he was so disappointed, he wanted to meet Terry Bradshaw. So my dear wife, Bradshaw started walking down the mall. My wife said, you're going to meet Terry Bradshaw. She grabbed DJ by the hand, and she started running down the mall. And I want to tell you something. My wife outran Terry Bradshaw, and she ran him down. That's pretty impressive. And she's dragging DJ along, and his little legs are just trying to keep up. And boy, she, she got up there, and she said, Mr. Bradshaw, my son really wants to meet you. And he patted him on there and said, hey, buddy, how you doing? Well, that was it. That just made DJ's day. But can you imagine meeting the Lord Jesus Christ? And walking with him. The white garment in the Bible seems to indicate righteousness. We know we have the righteousness of Christ, Romans 3.22. We also will be clothed in practical righteousness of our own deeds, Revelation 19. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So I don't know how all this works, but somehow there's something about it that we will, will be kind of clothing ourselves in a sense or adding to it the garments we wear at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then this great promise, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I believe the book of life is the record of the redeemed of all the ages. There's different views on that. Paul speaks of two women in the church at Philippi. You will die in sanctity. He says of them whose names are in the book of life. Now, in ancient cities, and this was true in Sardis, uh, when somebody was born, they would put their name on the register of the city. And then when they died, they'd blot their name out. And so Jesus is talking about the fact that when we come to know him as our Savior, he writes our name in the book of life. And when we are born again, he will never blot our name out of the record of the redeemed. Because once you've trust Christ as your savior, he puts your name. He saves you by name. There's no household salvation. There's no family salvation. You're not a Christian because your parents were Christians or you're raised in a Christian home. Just like you heard in these testimonies, you are saved individually when you come to know Christ. And again, it's the emphasis on the name, whose names, and then notice what this says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Can you imagine that? Little old me, little old you. Here's the company of a numeral number of angels, holy angels, and Jesus comes out and confesses my name and your name, if you know him as Savior. And he confesses 
he declares my name as one of his children. And my name is written in the book of life when I trusted Christ. (laughs) Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Anything we have to go through in this life for the name of Christ will pale to insignificance to what he promises us in these verses. Sadly, there's another side to the book of life. And it says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's no second chance after death. We decide in this life for or against Christ. While life remains, there is time to repent and time to be saved. So let me ask you what I asked you at the beginning. Could you give a clear, personal testimony of salvation you may not know the exact day I was raised in this church you've heard me say as many times I was raised in a Christian home I must have asked Jesus into my life hundreds of times I'd do something bad and I'd come to church and hear a message and and I'd think oh man I gotta ask Jesus into my heart make sure I'm saved Um, and so I know when I was got around 12 and that I really understood and confirmed it the point is today today You may not know the exact day, but what about today? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Is he your only hope for heaven, plus nothing, minus nothing? Is Christ and Christ alone? you putting your faith and trust in him, and by his grace, he will save you through the name of the Lord Jesus. And, and, and if we came to you and said, we'd, we'd like to do some testimonies, how about, or, or we said, hey, let's stand up and give some testimonies. Could you give a clear personal testimony of your salvation. And if you cannot, we would love the opportunity to share with you how you can.